The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. During the sitting, I was thinking about the story that uh, I heard yesterday and I I shared last night here, but it was about um, a friend who had visited the, I guess it's the Aviation Museum in Seattle and, you know, connected to Boeing maybe, or, but they have all of these um, fully intact models of historical, you know, planes that were used, jumbo jets and like the early, you know, um, passenger jets and, and they have, um, they have, uh, Air Force One, you know, from, you know, that, that were used historically. And the cool thing is you can kind of go inside the plane and sit in the seats and, you know, it's, so it's really hands-on. And, um, My friend was saying that she went onto uh, the, the 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 exact you know the the actual um, Air Force One that President Kennedy used. You know, it's kind of cool. In the, you know, in the '60s, and 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 kind of you walk through and you learn about it. And one of the things that they they say or they share is that uh, President Kennedy was. Um, was often um, complaining about the temperature. So, you know, he was kind of, said it was either too hot or too cold, and he was, you know, uh, driving someone crazy, I guess. So finally what they did is they said, well, then you control it yourself. So they gave him this controller with a temperature knob and that he could have at his desk and that he could kind of manage the temperature himself. And um, what they didn't tell him <laughs> was that the the controller wasn't connected to anything, <laughs> you know. And I don't know why I like that story so much, but I think there's some, you know, there's a kind of poignancy about um, something very human in wanting to get conditions just right you know and here you have the the kind of you know what's a better symbol of autonomy than the most powerful person in the world right but they're you know kind of fiddling with a with a knob that's not connected to anything and um i i think it's a good picture of 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 how we usually are and how we come to dharma practice and so this idea of trying to get things just right in s- some form or another. Um, and, and the problem with that is that we, the problem isn't that we can't affect our life and that we, we, we can't control our circumstances, but, you know, we, of course, we have some agency and some autonomy, so we can almost do it. We can almost, you know, it's like um, we have this new puppy at home and giving her these stuffed chew toys. And, you know, there's a certain art of getting, of getting it. It's like it can't be too easy and it can't be too hard. If it's too hard, she just gives up to get the, to get the goodies. You know, if it's too easy, they just spill out. Um, but so like for us that, you know, it's like, we can almost do it. We can almost control things. And then somehow life has a way of, (laughs) you know, um, uh, reminding us 
of the limits of our autonomy, the limits of our control, that, that things change, that they're impermanent. Even if we can get the temperature just right, it doesn't last. Um, and so I think about this, um, this very human impulse we have to get things just right, and then the request of practice to be with things just as they are just as it is. And somehow the, the, um, the request of Dharma practice is to bring these two together. What is it? You know, maybe we can say being Buddha is what happens when uh, things just as they are, uh, we can say they're truly just right, just as they are. You know, that kind of coming together. Um, and the quality of mindfulness, a quality of awareness that can um, meet, that can touch our experience, um, but, but leaves it just as it is. You know, it's, um, and, and this is the kind of, maybe this is the kind of transformation, or the kind of freedom in practice that um, we're, we're able to be with, things as they are. We're able to kind of enter into life as it is um, on life's terms, not on what I, what I want, what, what, I, what I demand, what I expect. Um, and I think over and over, we, at least speaking for myself, I need to learn this lesson, you know. And um, so, so in one way, it's, it's the simplest practice um, just as it is, to be with things just as they are. But um, it's deeply challenging. And I think we need a lot of support around this. And um, so, you know, sometimes I think of like Buddhist monastic life. And in, in our tradition, the uh, early early Buddhist Theravada tradition, there's something like 300 and something rules for a monastic, you know, of how to, you know, the, the kind of morning to night, the, the kind of um, way of living is, um, is kind of delineated. And, um, and in one way, for, I think maybe from the outside, it looks very strict. You know, so I mean, it's famously monks and nuns who are alms mendicants, you know, don't touch money. They don't uh, engage in sexual activity. They uh, don't keep food overnight. So they're dependent on the community. So it's kind of this radical way of living, you know, of have, really having nothing. Um, and, um, but when you talk to a monastic or someone who has been in that way of life for, for some time and has settled into it, sometimes they talk about that this is actually the easiest way of living or the easiest way to practice, you know, um, uh, that the that kind of radical simplicity is its own container um, that that allows, you know, may, that maybe sub, is supportive into entering into life as it is without, um, you know, you don't have a lot of choices. I mean, in a, in a little bit of a similar way, the time I spent living in a Zen monastery, um, or even if we go on a meditation retreat, it's like you discover that the whole day is laid out for you. And there are just these bells. And when the bell rings, you do this. When the bell rings, you stop meditating and you go eat. The bell rings. You. And so when we don't have to make a lot of decisions, maybe that's one support for um, being able to do this deep work, this challenging work of uh, entering into the moment and letting... Um, our experience, you know, giving over. It's a kind of surrender to um, whatever the experience happens to be. Um, so 
sometimes we say that um, being in the world is the most advanced practice, the most challenging practice. Um, it's one thing to be calm and to practice, you know, non-doing, you know, in a very protected environment and no one's talking to us and people are cooking for us and stuff. And it's very sweet and lovely, can be. Um, but what is it to uh, bring this same kind of mind and heart of acceptance and surrender and patience to a busy life? a life that's full, where there's maybe conflict, where there's relationships that are co- complicated. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday who was saying that uh, today he would be having a very challenging conversation with someone. And he's in the university setting and, um, you know, don't get in, don't get between two academics, <laughs> two professors, <laughs> so, you know, fighting it out or something. And it was clear, and what he was saying, he was very aware that this area, this conversation, he was very activated, very triggered and emotional. And it touched into, you know, um, feelings of safety, feelings of, um, you know, you know, being, you know, his particular, um, group and tribe and, you know, being respected, being understood. And so it was a really, really, um, challenging, sounds like it's going to be a challenging conversation and also something very rich and fertile, maybe could be for practice. And I didn't know, you know, what I didn't have any, you know, particular advice about the content of the disagreement. But what I suggested was that um, any place of conflict, of disagreement in our life, and especially with other people, um, for sure can be challenging but also maybe um, a very powerful place of opportunity. And kind of, you know, some, sometimes we talk about Dharma gate, a Dharma gate being a place where we, we can enter into the Dharma, enter into what's true, enter into how things are. And um, so what, what would it be like to have this conflict and interpersonal disagreement um, to be a Dharma gate. And one of the things I I suggested was that um, it may be an opportunity for a deep human connection, you know, to happen. And rather than going in, so this was going to be a meeting with a kind of colleague and then the kind of dean or head of the school. And they said, rather than going in and having a kind of debate and then, you know, maybe the dean is like the umpire or something who's going to decide who's right, who's wrong. You know, you could go in there and say, rather than debating you, I would like to try to understand you. And what, what is, you know, what, um, you know, why you said what you said and what, you know, what your intention is and where you're coming from. I really want to understand. And, um, in the same way, I want to share a little bit with you so you might be able to understand me. And, and what I suggested is if, if you come in with, um, you know, rather than what you say, but if how you are in this meeting is, is maybe the most powerful message, if you come in in a way that is calm and is peaceful and that's open, and, um, you know, that may shift the whole energy of something, you know, and even if it doesn't shift the whole energy, you're calm, <laughs> you're peaceful, you're, you know, we, we can't control other people and how they respond. But the idea in practice is it's, we can, um, the, the place of, of, our suffering and the place of our freedom is in how we are, 
how we relate. So if you can get to a place uh, in yourself that, that you're at ease and that you, that you know what you want to uh, manifest in this meeting and what you want to share and what you want to understand, then in a way you're, you've, you've already done your work and to go in and offer that. And to, you know, if you try to debate on the level of opinions and ideas, we're so, we're so attached to our opinions and our views. And you might change someone's mind, and that you know, may, may be a good thing. But what, what about if you make a connection, this intimate human connection, and um, that may be, that may actually be the, the greatest um, that may open the greatest possibility for for some kind of change. And I shared with him what Ruth King. Some of you may know who Ruth King is. She's a African American elder and Dharma teacher who lives in North Carolina, but she travels and she's taught with Gill on retreats and at our center. Our, our retreat center, and she's come here and give talks. And when I think the last time she was here, she was gonna, she was giving a Dharma talk. But she, before she gave the talk, she invited um, each each person, each of us in the audience, to connect with someone who was near them. And what she said, she she you know to to kind of stand up and turn towards a person who's close to you, proximity to you. And she had everyone look at, look at you know, this neighbor and then repeat after her. And what, what the line was, was it was something like, um, my heart and your heart are very old friends. My heart and your heart are very old friends. And... You know, which I love that, and I love it's the, for me, the, this, what it brings up is this idea and this felt experience of our deep connectedness, our kind of ancient connectedness. You know, and if you you know think of that from the Buddhist point of view, sometimes they say that every being you know, due to the kind of lifetimes and lifetimes that we've been cycling through, every being has been my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife. My and so this old ancient connectedness. Um, and even, you know, w- without that kind of understanding of lifetimes, um, our deep, you know, connecting on this level of our deep goodness, our deepest goodness, our deepest Buddha nature. And so I said to this person, what, you know, what would it be like to hold that in the heart and going into this very contentious meeting and just, you know, um, you know, in some way to uncover, to recover our connectedness. Um, and yeah, so I don't know how, how I think kind of in that meeting now and we'll kind of find out how, how it went. But I think for, for our practice, it's like, you know, how we are often is, is a much bigger message and more, more, more important message than uh, what we say. Um, I know for, you know, being a parent of young children, kids are so perceptive, you know, they're like these open systems and just absorb, um, they absorb not only our words, but maybe more so our kind of energy and a kind of emotional tone and quality. And um, if I have a, um, if I have a, a feeling of fear or of anger or of impatience, that's going to be kind of perceived and received in one way. And if I can somehow 
come to a place of, you know, even if, even if, uh, you know, there, you know, even, even if I'm not happy about something, is there a way of offering that, um, you know, with a kind of patience and with a, with a kind of wanting to understand what I said to this person who is a, who's a professor, I said, when you teach, you know, in your classes, do you find that um, it's very effective to teach when you're angry, you know, and kind of <laughs> pissed off and hurt and, you know, no, of course not, you know, and, and, and we learn best um, from kindness, from when, when, when someone wants to understand us. And he said that if he finds that a student keeps falling asleep in his class, he'll, he'll talk to them privately and, and kind of, you know, not, not being annoyed or angry or anything, but really trying to, to, to know what, you know, how are you? What's going on in your life? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you, are you working too hard? Are you getting enough sleep? And, you know, so, um, so how we are. And so, so when, we, when we show up to meditation practice, to give some attention to how, how I am, how am I, how, how am I going to relate to the next 20 minutes, the next 30 minutes? Is this going to be some battle with the defilements? You know, am I going to kind of um, scold myself for... Uh, daydreaming or fantasizing or um, thinking about some old problem or new problem? Or is there a way to, um, an attitude to practice, to, to, to approach um, a period of sitting that it's like... Um, You know, the, the, the way a parent might approach um, a beloved child with a kind of tenderness, a kind of wanting to connect, wanting to, wanting to be there, wanting to see what, what, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? Um, there's, this is not a realm of right and wrong. And so just in the way that we might enter into a conversation with a child, it's like we enter into it on their terms. We're not like, you know, talking to them like an adult and this is blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. And this, okay. And so this, this attitude of interest, of engagement, of respect, um, we can bring this to our practice, uh, we may find that um, this kind of sitting, this kind of walking, this kind of being with ourselves, allowing our experience to be just what it is, is can be a very powerful Dharma gate. You know, there's something I think there are some things that are only able to be seen when we let go of our own agenda. Um, sometimes there are some emotions that only show themselves when there's quiet and there's stillness and this kind of radical leaving ourselves alone. Um, not in a kind of abandonment, you know, but a kind of uh, not tinkering. You know, I think of like that temperature knob on the airplane. It's like this extreme kind of tinkering um, with our experience. We're going to kind of just, yeah, you know, get a little, try it a little, back to the breath. No, no, no. You know, open the sound. No, no, no. <laughs> and, um, 
but just this kind of radical leaving ourselves alone is maybe in, in one way the most compassionate thing we can do. Um, and as we learn to do that and enter into this as a Dharma gate, we can, um, we can also extend this to others. And um, rather than trying to control the people in our lives and make sure they're doing what we want them to do, <laughs> so they play their part in our, in our drama, <laughs> um, what is it to this radical kind of uh, allowing others to be who they are? Um, one of the most poignant pieces of, of uh, parenting advice someone gave me was, was something like, let your kids be who they are, you know, and um, let them teach you what they need. I think it's so, you know, we have this almost reflexive way of uh, sometimes of wanting others to um, do what we want them to do, do what we we think they should do. And, you know, and there there may be some wisdom or a lot of wisdom in there, you know, I have a, one of the ways this manifests for me is wanting to take care of people and help support their health. And, you know, so I, uh, one of my teachers is 90 years old, you know, and he's pretty good shape for 90. But I have a dream list of vitamins and supplements that I, (laughs) for him to take. (laughs) No. And you know, various times he's taken different things I've given him, but he he's, he's pretty relaxed about you know the kind of thing and doesn't you know I th- I think he kind of has this deep understanding that most of these vitamins and things are kind of like the knob on the <laughs> on the airplane you know and he's not that you know, okay you know, maybe I'll tried that a little while and um, and and so it's interesting for me to just sit with that and want to uh, you know want, want to in some way deeply hold off the kind of uh, inevitable vicissitudes of aging of sickness, of mortality. And, you know, um, and, and it doesn't mean that we should never take a vitamin or we shouldn't take care of ourselves. But how do I relate to it? How do I hold it? Um, I've, it's been interesting to me, and I've found this with, with friends who are relating to aging parents one of the patterns that I've noticed, maybe not always, is that the aging parents are, seem to be a lot more relaxed around aging than their neurotic middle-aged children. <laughs> Who are like, here's a list of 20 questions to ask the doctor. And, um, but sometimes the parents are like, well, I don't want to offend the doctor. You know, and this kind of, there's a kind of um, relationship there. And there's a kind of, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. I, my, my feeling is that it's a kind of deep ease and deep trust mixed in with a kind of um, maybe a little bit of, denial or something but you know it's like I don't want to go looking for problems you know and that's that's a lot of the 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 feeling that um, I've heard and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that Um, and then it's like you know 
in one in one case a friend a friend's doctor seems to have missed something on the, you know pretty important and and i said to her like are you going to what you know what would you you know what are you going to do are you going to follow up or are you going to kind of confront the doctor about this and she said well i would but my parents are like just let it go just you know we just want to deal with what's happening now and um so so how do we relate to all of this and and what's right what's wrong what's what's skillful um i appreciate that um one of the things my teacher has said is that when he has a medical situation i think i've said this before here he his approach is not to um not to sort of uh challenge the doctors and not to go in with a bunch of research or information but just to completely trust them and have a very good connection and good relationship and relax and he said if i have a good relationship with them and respect them they're going to do their best work um and so and it's a you know and so and for him going into the hospital is like being on vacation he said you just have to do anything it's comfortable um and and i think there's 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 a lot of wisdom there and that that sometimes we forget the human aspect you know that um yes we're human beings and yes we make mistakes but we're basically trying to do our best and um you know so this this interconnectedness this um on some deep level our hearts are our old friends um and so so the dharma gate of of trust of allowing our experience to be what it is allowing others to be who they are um and i think it can uh one of the qualities it can uh uh evoke in us is a deep feeling of acceptance of surrender to um how things are and um one way of entering this gate is to notice where is it that I can't do this. That's hard for me to do this. So how do I where do I struggle? Where do I resist? Um I know for me struggle and resistance often manifests as tension in the body. And this can be a very valuable place to bring our awareness to. where is their tension where is their tightness where is there some kind of extra contraction you know um not to judge it not to um particularly try to solve it but just to bring a kind of compassionate kind awareness it's so it's so much of the body in the sensations of the body are so much in the here and now and this is a wonderful doorway a wonderful dharma gate um into um this place of non acceptance non uh non patience non surrender so we can we can we can we can we can find the tension in the body and then um I think this the the maybe the corollary to this kind of physical tension is a kind of contraction in the mind that is often manifest as um 
some form of, of anger, of frustration, of um, irritation, you know. Um, this is, this is, you know, what is it for this to, too to be a Dharma gate rather than a sign of our, oh, there I go again. I still have, you know, I still get annoyed by blah, 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 blah. It's like, how can we find, what is it to find the ultimate, to find the absolute in our frustration, in our anger, in our impatience? Um, it's not a mistake. It's not, it's not a sign of failure or anything. It, it is um, a deep, maybe we could say it's a deep expression and manifestation of our humanity. And if we can be with it, if we can see it um, and hold still and kind of allow this container of practice awareness to hold it, it can be a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful uh, dharma, dharma gate. Um, oh yeah, this too. This is, this is, um, this is valuable. This is, this is worth being with, worth attending to. Um, so, I think maybe just to close with this encouragement that whatever difficulties we have for the physical difficulties or difficulties with um, our thinking, our emotions, that from the Dharma perspective, these are treasures. These are, um, these are the place we enter into life as it is. Um, it, it, there's a, maybe there's a deep request there um, that it's not a mistake. It's not a um, something to be uh, kind of uh, vanquished, so we can get back to real practice. I mean, this is where real practice happens. This is where deep practice happens. Places of conflict, places of struggle. Um, so it, it's calling. It's a calling on us to meet the moment with a kind of, uh, you know, maybe more openness, more, um, more, more interest. You know, what is this? You know, to want to understand like this person with a conflict. Um, how can I, I want to understand you know, what you know what this is about why 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 you you said what you said um, and then I think that creates the possibility for uh, transformation um, practice as about closing this gap between how we want things to be and how things are. You know, how we want things to be is, well, we want them to be just right. <laughs> we want them to be the way we want them to be. And this um, deep, deep understanding, which maybe, maybe that's what I'm picking up in my friend's parents who, you know, are, you know, are te- teachers who are, who are dealing with um, aging in a very real and and visceral way? Um, uh, close the gap between uh, that you know, this understanding that, in a deep way, life is never going to be exactly how we want it to be, um, and. So this, so bridging this gap between uh, just right and just as it is, just as it is. Oh.
Um, so, thank you very much. Offer this for you for our reflection, and um, we have some time and uh, comments, questions, thoughts. What do you think of this practice of just as it is? I know for me, it's, you know, if, if I use those words as a kind of pointer or as a kind of reminder, something in my system just softens. Oh yeah, just as it is. It, like it kind of takes the take some of the pressure off. Um, and maybe just tell us your name as well. People. This is Jan. Hi, Max. Um, you used the example of the foundation of like being in a monastery and all the rituals and patterns that can hold and we can surrender to? Well, because of challenges with overeating, I finally found a um, an eating plan that involves, you know, carefully balanced amounts of food and everything. Works great for me. I love it, right? And it's been a foundation like I don't have to worry about food anymore. In the, in the way of too much, too little, all that, I just know. But recently, because of some minor health reasons, I have to go on a special diet that blows the whole plan, right? Not the whole plan, but it's not what I've gotten really attached to. So here's this thing that it felt like I surrendered to, and then it gets messed up, and I realize I was attached to it. It's like leaving the monastery and then falling apart because you have to decide when to get up in the morning or to meditate, or, you know, it becomes a whole nother and deal with all these things that you didn't have to deal with in the monastery. It feels like that. And so it's, I don't know, it's just this morning sitting with that. I mean, I was kind of realizing already I was resisting, and I needed to accept, right? So I just got to, it's not going to be forever. It's just a couple weeks, you know, but I hope. But that'll help a lot if I can just accept. But it was, um, we don't know always. I guess it's that subtlety of accepting it as it is and knowing when we're attached to something that's, and in a way, we don't know until we lose it. And then the whole control thing comes in again, and then it has to be looked at again, I guess. I don't know what I'm asking. I don't know if you have anything to add yeah, to that, yeah. but it was just such a... I guess that, that rules and structure can support us, and rules and structures can... Imprison us. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a it's a wonderful illustration of the um, the sort of benefits and the limits of control. You know, it's like I mean, the, it, the problem with control is not that it never works; is that it almost works. And we can get to a place where everything, okay, you know, whether it's like I've set my life up, so I'm meditating twice a day and I'm doing this and that, or, you know, the food is all figured out and, and then life happens and something happens. And, but just to get to see that and to see, oh, oh, yeah, okay, there was some, um, what I thought was, um, a kind of uh, freedom around this um, that it depended on certain conditions being that way, and then that's fine, and you know, and just to see that, and so it's kind of the request is maybe you know a, 
another another kind of letting go you know and i remember when i left the monastery and we were kind of in a van a bunch of us coming back into san francisco because they were taking us from tassajara to san francisco zen center and i had the butterflies in my stomach i was nervous and it was what i you know it's like well what am i nervous about and it was just this like visceral sense of leaving an environment that was so protected and that was so controlled in a very um, predictable way and a way that felt, because it was so predictable and because it was kind of managed by lots of good people who were not perfect but were trying their best and, you know. Um, and it was leaving that and going into like the city, you know, and going into the world where, and it, it just had, had this sense of, wow, this um, loss of control. And, um, and you know, and within a couple of days, you kind of reacclimate to the kind of the sounds and the movements and the things of the city. Um, but I think we're often, I think a big part of practice is um, using our wisdom to um, design our life. You know, it doesn't mean like, okay, just never think about what we eat, never think about how, you know, no, you mean using our wisdom to do our best to design our life. Um, but, but then seeing where, what's that edge? Where do we... Um, what are the limits of control, the limits of autonomy? Um, I know some monastics who kind of live like almost like modern day hermits and exert a kind of extreme control over their life. You know, so can they meditate 10 hours a day and don't need to interact with people who they don't really want to interact with. And it's interesting you know it's interesting it's like it's there's there's a certain um you know i think there's a certain benefit to that i'm sure for this person but you kind of wonder like what what's not getting challenged what's not getting you know you know for you it's like um maybe there's you know that just just that this realm of control was somehow disturbed um, is a treasure because it's pointing out something oh okay I, now I can see something that I that I didn't see before and of course we don't want to we would we won't we don't wish to have um, our life the apple cart of our life turned over. Um, but what the Dharma says is one way or another, it will be. <laughs> you know, that's not optional. So, um, and if we have no practice in dealing with that, in, in maybe the, in the big scheme of things, the less consequential disturbances, if we have no practice in doing that, then we... Um, will be in bigger trouble when the when the big when the big stuff hits the fan. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a analogy, but you know we have this puppy, and so I've been reading about play biting and what that means and how to you know. I mean, I think what I rec- what I looked up on Google was stop how to stop biting, how to stop a puppy from biting. And she doesn't bite a little bit. And what I learned, or at least one perspective, is that all puppies play bite and they need to be taught how to modulate that bite. If they're just totally shut down and they're never allowed to play bite at all, then they may stop play biting, but they they don't learn how to modulate and control that the power of the jaw. And then if they're in a grown dog and a child, you know, steps on their tail or something, they may react 
in a, in a, in a, in a strong way because, I mean, that's their instinct and they've never really brought awareness to this and learned about it. And, the, so, and so the other way or this, what this philosophy is saying is that step by step, they need to learn how to control, you know, first they just kind of touch you with their teeth, you know, but with no force. And they learn how to do that and learn how to control that. And then they learn not to even touch you with their teeth. And you're kind of just mouthing, you know. And if they learn this, then when they really do get provoked or do get, their instinct is not to, you know, they have such awareness and control over it that they're not, you know, so if we, if we, so maybe the, the corollary is if we live a, a life that's so protected and so sterilized, you know, we don't, we don't have practice in how to let go of the little things, so to, so to speak. Um, and then, and then we're completely lost when, you know, that, I mean, I think about this with parenting and the kind of, you know, the idea of the, the snow plow parent who just clears away for, you know, the child is, you know, I don't want you to ever deal with anything that's any kind of adversity. Um, and it turns out that that's not such a good thing, <laughs> you know, that we need to, we need to be trained on, on, on kind of challenges and problems. And that's how we learn, bringing awareness to that. Our immune system, it turns out, needs to be trained. On, we need to play as little kids, play with other kids and get sick and be exposed to things. And that's very healthy because it trains our immune system. If, a, if a, an animal is raised in a sterile environment, then whenever they encounter something dangerous, the immune system may overreact, you know. And so, um, as challenging as it is, we can be grateful for our <laughs> problems. Uh, yeah, thank you for, for sharing. Um, the um, what you talked about about parents resonates with me. Um, I dealt with that with my dad for many years. Um, had many health issues, and he's not here anymore. Um, I'm dealing it with my mom right now, and she's at a distance. She's um, in Florida, and what I find is, um, I, I you say you use the word control, and I think um, the need to do something. I guess that's a form of control. Um, I've started asking myself, um, am I doing it for me or for her? Mm-hmm. And so that's been very helpful to delineate where sometimes it's for my own to keep myself <laughs> calm versus what's really the right thing for her. And there are times she needs me to do. So it's um, the practice has helped me separate myself enough to ask her mm. what she needs. And a lot of times she needs a lot mm. um, that maybe I wouldn't have even thought of. But I think having that separation and questioning, like kind of why I'm doing something or why I need to have control, um, and then having a distance and sitting with it. Um, because what we say to each other, her and I, are we don't get to choose the end and we don't get to we can choose how we go about it but we don't get to choose what happens to us mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. so um so i appreciate your thoughts on that it's a mm. it's difficult and it's a struggle and it's hard to be far yeah so yeah, yeah anyway thank i appreciate you. the things you were saying earlier yeah, thank yeah, you yeah thank you very much and i think that's yeah it's such a there's no recipe you know, it's such a dynamic. I appreciate what you're saying about the um, the practice of checking in and seeing why do you know what um, 
what, what's, what's behind this? What's motivating this? And what does the person who I'm trying to help want? <laughs> you know, because sometimes we, we have a, you know, what I want for, for this person may not be what they want. You know, and actually it's, it's, I want it for my own, you know, I don't want to feel the pain of this loss. And I'm going to do, you know, I, I'm, I'm on this group and it might be interesting for some people, you might know about it, but there's a group on Facebook called, I think it's called Slow Medicine. And it's a lot about um, aging and caring for aging loved ones. And, and there's a lot of wisdom and people share different experiences, but it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big question. And, um, what is it to, um, uh, you know, what is it to really help? And who, you know, who, you know, is it taking care of one's own needs and another, another person's needs and, you know, anyway, yeah. Complicated, complicated. My my friend was saying, uh, go ahead, yeah. I was just going to say, my my friend was saying that she recently, they moved her grandmother, who's 98 years old, into into a kind of assisted living. And and her grandmother is, is kind of lucid, but kind of not. And um, her biggest thing was not wanting to leave her house. And, but finally at the age of not, you know, she kept falling and, and, but so they kind of realized at the age of 98, she kind of needed to, but, um, and they, and they ended up having to sell her house in order to just pay for the care. But there's not a day that goes by that she asks, am I, when am I going home? Can I go home today? And, um, so, yeah, it's, Balancing these needs and, and what is it? Yep. Please go ahead. Uh, I don't think so. Just you just push the button until it's the light comes on. Um, on this same topic, I'm thinking sometimes caring for a loved one like that they they actually do need help, like maybe to take a medicine or there are actions that they count on you to help them with. The other thing is when they don't, if they're not doing the things like taking a medication that's been prescribed, it, it does impact you too because you're, you know, you might feel sad or upset that they're not doing what they need to do. <clears throat> but something I noticed in myself recently in this is that, I think I was, meditation talk I heard, um, was sometimes if, if someone's not doing, you know, their prescribed what they're supposed to be taking for their medicine, you, you can actually go right to anger. Like you actually get angry at them. And um, I realized that when I'm responding with aversion or anger, that's just all about myself. And so now I'm trying to notice when am I actually responding to this person with compassion? Because really people that are sick or aging elderly people you know, they're, they're facing health challenges. And I noticed I wasn't even feeling compassion. I was just going right to aversion and anger mm-hmm. for them not doing the things that will improve their condition. Mm-hmm. So now I'm trying to just be mindful and notice, oh, I'm actually feeling compassion for this person now, not just the, the pain that it causes me to see the degeneration. So it's like, but it's hard to balance that. It's hard to... I don't know, to sort of, I guess you just have to see, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling aversion. Like, what's my relationship to that? Like you said today, what is your relationship to the situation? Because the person may need prompting to take a medication or to, to make a doctor's appointment. So you don't want to, so you have to like find that line with letting that person be who they are, but you also are supporting them. So that, that's a challenge. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah. No, I think it's very, very well said. And that's, that's like the, you know, I think about it with raising children, right? Yes. 
great, let them be who they are, but we have to go to school on time and we have to, you know, eat our vegetables and do this, you know. And um, I think it's so situational. And, but, but what I would say is the more connected we are with ourselves, you know, meditation practice is, is a great support for that and mindfulness. And um, the more connected we are, then we'll, we'll pick up on when am I, is, you know, is this coming from a place of wisdom? Mom, you know, um, it's really important that you take these pills and here's why. And, you know, or is it, uh, is it coming from a place of reactivity? I need you to do what you need to do. So you are here for me, you know, or, you know, and, and then it's, Often there's a mix of things going on. I, wh- I remember one of my teachers, um, Paul Haller, who is a wonderful teacher from the San Francisco Zen Center and teaches with Gil a lot. He was one of the founding members of the Zen Hospice Project. And, um, and this was in the 80s with the AIDS crisis and all these things happening. And, and I remember he said that... Um, forget the exact details, but um, there was a question that came up in the hospice of should we allow residents, you know, patients who were there to smoke, you know? And in one, in one hand, you think about, you know, smoking is bad for, bad for health and bad for, you know, all these reasons. And, um, but his, Paul's point of view was, was something like, you know what? What, what we're doing is we're entering into their world and meeting them on their terms. And he said, it turns out that for a hospice volunteer, um, carrying a lighter is a pretty useful thing to have. <laughs> you know, and uh, I just love that, that it was this kind of, you know, are we going to put our own, I mean, these folks are dying, right? You know, they're, they're there and they're, and they're dying. And um, we may be completely in the right to say, you know what, this is not good for you. It's not good for anyone here. And, but it was kind of this radical act of compassion or to kind of be, enter into this person's world on, on their terms and, um, sit with them while they smoked and you know and I don't know what's right or what's wrong and um but I appreciate the the you know the complexity of it and and I I do think that the more connected we are to ourselves then our it's more likely that we'll be coming from a place of intuitive wisdom versus reactivity um, and, and we do our best, we do our best and that's all, you know, all we can do. But, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to say a quick word from the other perspective as a doctor of alternative medicine where um, children of older parents often feel very um, pressured internal, internally to do something, make something happen. And as you were saying, their parents are often more relaxed about things. And there's this also this component of the kids think that the parents want to please the doctor by saying, oh, I'm okay, and then the do- makes the doctor happy that they're better. And then the kids say, no, no, you're all complaining all the time. You're always complaining to me about this problem and that problem. Tell them the truth and tell them what's going on, really. And often that comes from the kids feeling like, you say, they, they need to maintain this control, but also that at home the parents are very dependent on the 
kids, their kids, grown kids, and so they're um, wanting that connection. They're wanting to be taken care of. But at the same time, the older parents are letting go. And it makes me think of the principle of gero transcendence, which is that in old people, they're moving towards death, they're moving towards a higher state, and they're moving through transcendence of this world. And they often start seeing their ancestors and relatives who are dead, and their kids are trying to convince them, no, they're really dead, they're not here, and so forth when they get really old. But the older people are really letting go and I treat a wide spectrum of ages, so I see these little kids, and they're concerned about every little symptom they have, and then you have to kind of put it into perspective that they're a little dramatic, and they cry, and it doesn't really hurt that much. So there's this judgment issue in medicine of how much do people really need, and I so appreciate these older people who are just, Kind of letting things go, and I don't need to take that medicine. And, ah, there's too many pills and too much trouble to eat all this food. And I keep in mind that letting go aspect, and um, and am kind of amused by the um, the grown children who are taking on that role of being their own grandparents. Oh, thank you, thank you very much, Randy. Yeah, it's, um, and I think um, one of the, maybe just to close um, one of the things that I have noticed um, in in the, the the few times that I've been with friends who are at the end of life in one way or another, some of them were young, somewhat middle aged or younger. Um, some older, and then I, one was a, was a French child, which was especially difficult. But a lot of the difficulty, if I when when I was really connected and really looking in, was this reflection. They were mirrors. They were mirrors for my own mortality, my own. You know, so I was seeing in them something I didn't really want to see in me, and. Um, you know, so, so, you know, and this is a very human thing. And but what a, um, you know, what a gift it is to be able to uh, learn from those of us who are, are in this, who are, who are as, as you say, who are kind of um, preparing to transcend, preparing to, transition and um, to, to yeah to be to be willing to uh, learn and, and 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 stay close stay close to uh, their hearts stay close to our own heart and you know hopefully uh, make wise make wise decisions so yeah Okay, thank you, everyone. Thank you.